0: It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hi, it's lunchtime uh, on Tuesday, uh, September the 29th. And over the last few months on the Keenan show, we've had an ongoing debate about whether or not capitalism can be reformed from within or from the outside. I think it's clear that capitalism in its current form isn't working very well, especially for the, the, the those who are going without. I've had a couple of people on the show who have been relatively optimistic about reforming capitalism from within. Uh, Sir Ronnie Cohen, uh, an impact investor, um, wrote a book called Impact Reshaping Capitalism, which he believes that capitalism can be reformed from inside by essentially uh, progressive capitalists and uh, Rebecca Henderson's "Reimagining Capitalism." Rebecca, uh, Rebecca's book is a finalist for the FT Book of the Year Award. Rebecca also believes that, shall we say, progressive corporations can reform capitalism from within. My guest today, however, I think, and I don't want to put words into his mouth, but Joel, um, Bacon uh, or Bacon. Uh, uh, I'm, uh, he's got a tough name, but an easy thesis. Joel believes, I think, that uh, capitalism can't be reformed from within, at least in terms of uh, corporate reformers. Uh, he has a new book out, The New Corporation, how, quote, unquote, good corporations are bad for democracy. So, Joel, without wishing to put words into your mouth, uh what are wrong or what is wrong with good corporations so
1: the essential thesis of the book is that number one corporations are constituted by law in such a way that they always have to serve their own self-interest which courts interpret as the financial interests of their shareholders so when they say they can be good uh, there's a real limit in terms of how far they can take that idea. So that's that's the first uh, that's the first piece. The second is that corporations have been leveraging this notion that they can be good in order to accumulate more power and more domain over society and more control over government. So what I document in the book is a trend from around 2005. When you see corporations really stepping up their rhetoric and even stepping up their action, recycling and renewable energy, all of this stuff. But at the same time, they're also saying, hey, we're good now. So you can trust us. You don't need to regulate us. For example, we can regulate ourselves. You can let us run your schools and your water systems and your housing programs. So we can take over the kinds of things that governments used to do because we really care now. Uh, and and so I think this is a very dangerous move. It's a move against uh, and in a direction away from democracy because whatever else you might say about corporations, they're not democratic institutions.
0: Joe, would it be fair to say that the problem you've described is a problem not so much with capitalism but with the state? When you have a vacuum at the centre, powerful corporations step in. So the problem isn't so-called good corporations. It's the unraveling, the disappearance, the looting of the state by uh, one kind of free market force or another.
1: Well, I think the one kind of free market force or another is exactly the force of big business uh, claiming to be good and working hard to push back the state, lobbying for uh, cuts in taxes to corporations, lobbying for deregulation lobbying for privatization using all of their substantial power in order to diminish the state so when we when we talk about the state being diminished the real question is who is the author of that and big business has been on a rampage since the early 1980s um to to really sort of shrink the state to the point that it doesn't really challenge uh, their ability and their impunity uh, to profit, and and so I think you know it, it's a tricky thing talking about the state, about capitalism, about the corporation because they're all interwoven. Let's not forget states create corporations. Corporations aren't part of nature, uh, so they are a product of state power itself. So the whole thing becomes quite quite complicated. It's a kind of complicity among all of these different forces that's at work. Uh,
0: last week, um, uh, Joel, the, the New York Times, which I wouldn't necessarily describe as an, an anti-capitalist newspaper, although I think it's probably relatively progressive, certainly further to the left than the right, came out with an interesting piece about what it calls the the failure, essentially, of, of what it calls stakeholder capitalism, um, and it is a piece which suggests that the kinds of companies, of their CEOs, the Jeff bezoss the um, the Mark Benioffs from Salesforce, who show up at big uh, big conferences like Davos, are not coming through with the goods. They're promising to reform society, to make place, to make the world better but they're not actually doing anything. It is your critique of what uh, in Davos language is called stakeholder capitalism.
1: Yeah, it, it is. I mean, you know, I, in, in both the book and the film that I made, I interviewed the person who coined that term and who is the head and founder of the World Economic Forum and the Davos meeting and who hosts the Davos meeting, an economist named Klaus Schwab. So he came up with, that idea of stakeholder capitalism back in the 1970s, and in the book I talked to him about it, um, really that idea then spawns a whole bunch of ideas that are more current today. We have creative capitalism, natural capitalism, conscious capitalism, green capitalism, all of these attempts to modify capitalism in ways that uh, reflect Klaus Schwab's initial idea of stakeholder capitalism, which is... Corporations shouldn't just serve the interests of their shareholders. They should serve the interests of all stakeholders. And that includes employees, that includes communities, that includes the environment. The big problem with that idea and the the sort of root of my critique is that corporations aren't made to do that. That's like asking a lawnmower to give you a haircut. It's the wrong tool. It's the wrong instrument. Corporations are made with a legal imperative to put the interests of their shareholders first. So even while a corporation may say we're going to serve this stakeholder, that stakeholder, they always have to do so only to the extent it doesn't get in the way. It doesn't impede their fundamental missions. And so the New York Times piece, you know, which is a piece very much along similar lines to the book, uh, that, uh, that just came out on the 22nd of September. Um, that piece is saying these people aren't living up to their promise. My argument is they can't, they simply can't, that the corporation is not a vehicle that can live up to the grand promises that it's going to bring social and environmental goods.
0: Uh, Joe, I, I, the argument in some ways, but in other ways, I have to push back. Um, I'm speaking to you from Silicon Valley, from the Bay Area. We have two kinds of big tech companies. We have a company like Oracle run by someone like Larry Ellison, pro-Trump, who has no interest in any way in the social good and is unambiguously focused on profit. And then we have companies like Salesforce.com, which is certainly not ideal in any way, but run by Mark Benioff, who is committed in some ways to reforming society. Benioff, for example, um, has put a lot of his money into children's hospital. Uh, He's brightened the skyline of San Francisco, although I'm not sure that necessarily benefits all of us. But he's certainly someone in contrast with, uh, with Larry Ellison that is trying to do some element of social good. No one's forcing him to do that. Are you saying that essentially there's no difference between a Benioff at Salesforce uh, or a Pullman at Unilever and uh, a cutthroat, hardcore, 19th century style capitalist like Larry Ellison?
1: I'm not saying that. And I'm very careful and clear in my book to say that While corporations all share the same DNA, the same fundamental institutional structure, while that's created by law, while that requires them to pursue their own self-interest above all other interests, different corporations under different leaders do it differently. And the analogy that I use, and I'm speaking to you from Canada, I'm a bit of a, a hockey nut, I love ice hockey, Um, I play the game, I coach the game. And I think when you look at ice hockey, you can see there are teams and there are players who play the game very violently. And then there are teams and players who play a high skill game. You can't paint with one brush and say all teams play hockey the same way. What you can say is they all play hockey by the same rules and that those rules create what is fundamentally a violent game. Uh, it It is actually a quite violent game, you know, hard ice, hard surfaces, hard boards and a very tenacious uh, attempt to keep the puck to yourself. No team is going to politely give the puck away to the other side. So I think what I'm interested in in all my work is asking the question, what are the limits of the shared institutional structure that is this thing, the corporation? In the same way, you could ask, what are the limits of the game of hockey? And within those limits, of course, there's an envelope to be pushed, but there's still an envelope. And and my argument is simply that within those limits, you can get, you know, Salesforce sort of doing these nice things and you can get Oracle just being really nasty or the Koch brothers or whomever you wanna choose but they're all working within the limit of having to put their own interests first. So they're not gonna go very far in terms of these social dimensions. And I would add the further point that I'm actually more scared of the sales forces and the Pullmans and Unilevers than I am of the Koch brothers. And the reason for that is because they're leveraging this idea of good to basically push back and take over public functions of democratic and elected governments, That for me is where the danger lies moving forward. You may have heard of uh, Richard Edelman, one of the sort of top gurus in the world. One of the most chilling things for me when I was running around Davos and interviewing people was when I interviewed him in the main square of Davos. And he said to me, and I'm quoting, I'm not much of a believer in political citizenship. I believe in the power of the marketplace. Now, Edelman is one of the good guys in capitalism. He believes that corporations should operate from purpose. He believes in social responsibility. He believes corporations are and should be good actors. But what he's saying in that statement, I'm not much of a believer in political citizenship. I believe much more in the power place of the and mar- power of marketplaces. Is basically I'm looking at democracy in my rearview mirror. I'm going to put my faith in the Pullmans, in the Benoffs, in all of these good capitalists, to take the lead in society, to me that's terrifying.
0: What is your view on a, on on a Bill Gates figure, who spends half of his life in certainly not in a good corporation, in a bad corporation, making an enormous fortune, and the second half of his life doing again quote unquote Good work, philanthropy. Are you opposed to the idea of uh, entrepreneurial, uh, successful entrepreneurs becoming philanthropists? Does Gates fall into essentially maybe not a good corporation, but a a quote unquote good citizen?
1: yeah, Bill Gates sort of coined the term, and I deal with him in my book and film in some length, at some length. Uh, he coined the term creative capitalism, which is another version of stakeholder capitalism. And you know what I would say to Bill Gates is, pay your taxes and let democratic institutions uh, take care of of schools and and other uh, important public functions. And then let me give you an example. Bill Gates has used his money to drive the school's privatization movement in the United States and around the world. One of the stories I feature in the book and the film is a company called Bridge International Academies, which runs schools in Africa on a for-profit basis. So Bill Gates has a particular model or ideology of, what, of how public services should be delivered. And it's on a for-profit basis, and it's entrepreneurial rather than democratic, and it's on a privatized basis rather than a public basis. Does that mean he's a bad person? Not necessarily. I think he's probably a very decent person, but he operates from a particular vision of how we should be delivering social issues or social goods in society. And it's a privatized market-based system, and it's based on diminishing the role of the state and empowering companies and entrepreneurs to take over what were once public roles. And you know when you look at the kinds of things he puts his money into, particularly in the education space, uh, it's very clear that's that, that that's what his agenda is. What I would say to him, to Jamie Dimon, to Paul Polman, to all of these so-called good capitalists, is stop taking advantage of Donald Trump's tax breaks Stop pushing Donald Trump for more tax breaks, which is what you've been doing, as I document in my book. Stop pushing Donald Trump for more deregulation, which is what you've been doing. Stop pushing for the kinds of policies that Donald Trump is advocating of diminishing the role of the state in the economy. Uh, That's what you should be doing. Why is it that you say you believe in social environmental values, and then you're doing everything you can to diminish the role of public institutions in protecting and promoting those values. There's something really wrong in that, and that's the tension that I look at in the book and film that I've made.
0: Are there any former entrepreneurs uh, or current entrepreneurs who you admire, who you think offer some sort of model for putting wealth back into society in a responsible way?
1: The person who I admire most and who still is a real hero of mine, I featured in my first book and film called The Corporation back in the early 2000s. And his name was Ray Anderson, and he was the founder, chair, CEO of a company called Interface, which makes carpet tiles and Ray Anderson's view. And he worked very closely with the Clinton administration on improving environmental regulation. So he took a very different view from most of uh, his uh, brethren, and they were mostly brethren, uh, in the CEO class. He said, we need to be regulated. He said, and I'm quoting him, uh, in the future, people like me will be put in jail for plundering the earth. So he really believed in the idea that there's a place for markets, There's a place for corporations, which I agree with. I'm not anti-corporate. I don't believe we should make corporations disappear, but he believed in a properly functioning democracy, corporations should be properly regulated in order to protect public interests, rather than leaving it to them to voluntarily, hopefully take account of those interests in their pursuit of making money.
0: Uh, Joel, your, your book ends on a more positive note. Much of the book is a critique of of of, go, of good corporations, uh, which, of course, in your mind, aren't so good. Uh, but it, it ends positively on uh, citizen movements, whether it's Black Lives Matter or Occupy. And you have one example of the uh, of the local government of Barcelona, of Mayor Colau, I think, it, it, how I pronounce her name, um, who is pushing back against corporations and who is reinvigorating democracy in the face of these all-powerful corporations? What's happening in Barcelona as a as as a signpost to a more positive future?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that Mayor Colau got elected on the basis of a large sort of c- citizen's movement coming out of uh, the equivalent in Spain, which actually happened before our own Occupy movement. And so she brought an activist government into power. They've had some successes uh, on a number of fronts in terms of social services, in terms of housing. Um, but you know, they're they're a municipal government, and they are in a state, Spain, uh, where municipal governments have some autonomy, but not lots of autonomy. Um, so they are still subject to what is happening at the national level. And she's also in a minority position. So I, I look at her as an example of the kind of vision and the kind of um, energizing of democratic politics that we should be looking at. In terms of what's happening in, in in Barcelona, I think she's going as far as she's able to with a minority government in a municipal position uh, to advance the kinds of agendas that she uh, had in place, especially around housing. They've taken some Uh, measures against Airbnb to try to free up rental stock Uh, and they've taken some very positive measures on social services and she's also developed a real kind of town hall. She's institutionalized this idea of participatory politics where uh, she hears from citizens and citizens groups on a more regular basis than than most municipal governments.
0: Joel, you're talking to me from Vancouver in Canada where you live. Uh, I'm in the United States, the the models you tend to use as examples are from Europe, although you do have some from the United States. How conceivable is it to reform American capitalism, given what's happening in this country? I know that Canada and Spain are perhaps more reformable.
1: My sense in in doing the research for this book, and I'm an American citizen, by the way, so I do see myself as uh, I grew up in in Michigan. I uh, My sense is that we are at a time that, that's very ripe for the kinds of changes that I'm talking about in the book and that um, some European countries and to some extent Canada in some ways uh, have adopted. Uh, I think you need only look at the uh, two runs of, of Bernie Sanders, uh, albeit they weren't successful in the end. but. That that kind of, um, of, of popularity of a politician with that kind of agenda would have been inconceivable 20 years ago. I think especially among young people, there's a strong sense that a more social kind of capitalism and a more social kind of democracy is needed. I think the Green New Deal has a lot of energy behind it, a lot of uh, support. Uh, even Joe Biden is talking about the need to uh, take... A, uh, to take a different view, to, to reboot things in a way that brings corporations more under democratic control. So I think there's a lot of movement in the United States in that direction. I think there's a lot of movement in the United States in the exact opposite direction as well. I think the United States right now is a very divided country um, between you know the the sort of people who are supporting. Donald Trump and and that whole agenda and uh, and and the others who have a, a more social and social democratic agenda. There isn't a lot of uh, middle ground, and I think one of the things that people need to know is that the business community, the the so-called um, you know good corporations and good CEOs, have been leveraging Trump's administration for as much as they can to advance their interests in ways that are not necessarily going to help the public interest. So even though you see the lights of Benioff and Jamie Dimon uh, and these, these other good CEOs uh, saying good things, even coming out and criticizing Trump on his immigration policies or whatever, they are in there lobbying like crazy to get more deregulation, more tax cuts. and And, you know, that's easy enough to document and I documented in my book.
0: Well, for certainly a very compelling and and persuasive critique of stakeholder capitalism, Joel Bacon's The New Corporation, How Good Corporations Are Bad for Democracy is a central reading and it actually goes together with a whole bookshelf of books, um new books on on monopoly capitalism which uh, I would encourage you to read with. Uh, Joel, as I suggested earlier, you're stuck, if that's the right word, in Vancouver, one of North America's loveliest places, I think, uh in the in the in the COVID lockdown. In addition to the new corporation, what else should people be reading in these strange times?
1: Well, I mean, having just finished this film, and by the way, the, the film will be premiering in the United States in October, and if you're interested in all of this, just go to Joelbacken.com. Uh, I made a movie and and uh, wrote the book at the same time. Um, and having done all that, and having spent five years doing it, I've been reading novels. I've been uh, trying to engage with that side of myself, having been in the in the whir of uh, nonfiction for so long. And a couple of great ones that I've read: um, Isabel Allende's latest, uh, called a, a Long Petal of the Sea. Um, and it's very much uh, about a time in Chile that's not dissimilar to our current time in the United States, uh, when uh, her uh, uncle, I believe, Salvador Allende, was deposed in a coup uh, and a, uh authoritarian fascist government uh, took over. And it all happened within the institutional framework of democracy. So it's a bit of a, a warning tale. And, and it's a beautiful love story. It's all all those things you would expect in a novel. Uh, the other great novel I've read, which again is I think very relevant to our time uh, uh, in terms of the Southern border in the United States is American Dirt uh, by uh, Jeanine Cummins. And it's um, again, just a, a wonderful and vivid and rich account of the, the plight of migrants um, that are making their way from Central America and from Mexico to the United States and the, the sort of real impacts uh, that they're feeling and the suffering and the death and the horror that they're experiencing as we sort of see the headlines and and these policies around building a wall and, and rounding up migrants and all of this happening. Uh, so it's a beautiful novel in that way, a very a very disturbing one. Uh, so those are, those are the two most recent books I, I've read.
0: You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, andrew key make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in itunes stitcher spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts while you're at it if you enjoyed what you heard we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.